We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a to celebrate and so much to discuss how do you know where to direct this podcast well you direct it to the one place that's obvious gloating about the predictions you got right on the previous episode this is the arsenal vision post-match podcast my name is elliot smith you can block me on twitter yankee gunner so yeah i mean we could talk about the lineups the formations the tactical decisions the great saves from leno the the Obama Yang penalty, Shaka's swerving shot how we're back in the top four race when the wheels come off the bus from spurs or or we could just sit here and gloat about how Clive knew what we were going to do with the lineup, how uh, I predicted Gwen would go to the bench, how we predicted a big victory, and, you know, we could just do that. I want to do that, but I suspect you, dear listener, do not want to do that. We may do some of that. Uh, here to do it with me is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo, you guys are the real story here. I, I've been trying to tell you that, and it took you until March to figure it out. Uh, Tim is here. You can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. And Clive is on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Okay. Into the mic next time. Now, uh, we have housekeeping. Housekeeping. You want head for a pillow? Uh, so, the housekeeping is we have a YouTube live show coming up ahead of Ren. We have a Ren post-match show. We have it in the spotlight coming up. we got all kinds of stuff. Good. That's housekeeping. Done. Let's get on to the game. So, Tim, uh, you were at the Emirates. First, just super quick question. Yeah. What? Was this the febrile atmosphere of a big game? Did it did it have the energy of the hated rivalry? I mean, what's what take the temperature of the Emirates for us right now? Where where was fan sentiment going into this one? 
Yeah, it, I, I think it took a little bit, a, a little time to warm up atmosphere-wise, actually, and probably until the second goal. Um, after the second goal, it was it was quite lively because I think um, it, it we really looked like winning at that point. Um, but also, I I think you know the game was still really, really in the balance. We were on the back foot for for quite a bit of it, but kind of the last twenty minutes after the second goal, when the wind started to absolutely howl and the rain was kind of absolutely driving in like some of the worst conditions i've ever seen actually at the stadium and i think that kind of livens people up anyway um just quite naturally just because people want to keep warm and 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 kind of create a bit of a distraction from getting absolutely soaked so uh yeah it it took some time to warm up i mean it's it's not the arsenal man you have yesterday year but um yeah it was it was pretty good it was a there was a good feeling in there there wasn't much like moaning and groaning and you know oh i want my favorite player to come on and all of that but um yeah yeah it was it was it was good it was one of the best he ones played all everybody played them all yeah, i know i was just gonna say who, yeah who are you gonna call who are you gonna call for jenkinson he had all of everybody's true. favorite player out there so tim i'll stay with you for a minute i mean what did you make of him having everybody's favorite player out there aside from knowingly nodding at clive's genius from the previous episode <laughs> Yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? Trying to guess who I am starting lineups is like trying to guess someone's phone number. Um, to be honest, oh, for God's it, sakes, it's just ten it, digits. It's yeah, it, it'd take you forever. Um, I you know I I wasn't sure. I was pretty sure he would start Ramsey, and um, I thought that Lacazette would start, but um, I I was surprised to see Aubameyang and even more surprised to see Ozil but I think where this worked really well you could see in the first half an hour I think you know Man U set up in kind of a four diamond two because I think that they thought that's what we were going to do and uh, actually United had to change half an hour into the game um, to bring a third player into midfield because they kept getting outnumbered but by then not the whole damage it wasn't irreparable but we'd gone one nil up and we'd gone one nil up because Granit Xhaka found space and no one closing him down uh, 30 yards out because man you were down a man in midfield after that United made the fix they put three in midfield and after that it was you know it was a very kind of touch and go game but really you could you could, I think, quite justifiably argue, but just that surprise alone kind of won us the game because it, I think it, it contributed massively to that first goal. And particularly in the first half, I really, really... I mean, I don't think anyone expected Ozil to start. And I, actually, it was it was quite a, quite an intelligent surprise to, to spring because I don't think United had a plan for that at all. No, and I think in general, you know, all the big calls he had to make look like the right ones. Playing two strikers on this day, I thought they combined well and it worked. Um, Ozil and Ramsey, I thought both played the roles they were given really well. This, yeah. you know, Paul, in some ways, this was reverting back to a little bit. I mean, not exactly, but a little bit of what won us that FA Cup a couple of seasons ago. You and I discussed this. Um, admittedly, we were talking more about the Ren game than the United game, but dropping Ramsey into central midfield along with Shaka. Now, I'm not sure we dominated the center of midfield like we did in the semifinal and final of that cup run, but it worked. The interesting thing, though, is that the big calls may not have been Ozil or Ramsey so much, but I think certainly Maitland-Niles was one of the really big calls. Um, and that's one that I think overall paid dividends. For you, if you look at that lineup and you had to say what was sort of the gutsiest or most influential choice he made that wasn't sort of a natural one, is Maitland-Niles maybe a sneaky option there? 
Yeah, and going with the two wing backs, which was key to the play. I mean, Kalasinac is the other. Or sorry about that, Clive. Didn't mean to show off. Kalasinac is the other side of that uh, that uh, coin there in terms of our attacking prowess. So uh, Maitland Niles, there were lots of views on on how good he was. Like everybody played really well in this game at the end of the day, but. Um, whether he was man of the match performance, I don't think he he merited that. I think it, it, it's all relative to the basis you start from. But he got stronger as the game went on. I thought uh, James Gunnerblog did quite a nice psychological profile from him with this. You know, he he's not as cool as he makes out to be. Mm. Uh, he's holding a lot in, but he got stronger and stronger, more confident as the game went on, and it it started to really suit him as a game. Um, so the wing backs was a big call. I mean, three versus four at the back is a big call in terms of style. Um, so I don't think you can break apart the those pieces. The, I mean, Ozil Ramsey is a huge call in a big game like this. Absolutely massive. So do, do you think play. that Genduzzi's play in midweek and and the going to sleep for that goal though, you know, was maybe the deciding factor there? Or are we over overthinking that? Well. I don't like your opinion on that, but there there might be a lot of merit to it. That that's uh, usually the did, case. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he did actually. He maybe did actually have a a rethink on Genduzi and think he should sit this one out. It's great that he doesn't hold a grudge. Um, so I don't think the players will get that sense from him, but he might well decide Genduzi needs a breather and to kind of rethink his contribution going backwards. Um, but. Maybe the bigger deal was Mkhitaryan not being available, that that forced his hand. Because where was he going to get that create creativity without Mkhitaryan? And uh, it's just ballsy. Uh, maybe Genduzi gave him that little bit of an excuse as well. So there's there's two players he can look at and say, eh, you know, I've lost one. I'm not feeling it on the other. Uh, it strengthens your hand when you need to do something ballsy. And uh, fair folks to the guy. I mean, there's been many discussions along the way about, you know, uh, him burning bridges with players or using a player to make a point, etc. Now, you can do it on a small level, but if you do it on a big level, if that's the reason you're not playing Ozil or Ramsey, then, you know, that's bad. That's weak that that you really have to kind of set your stall out on a player. Well, he hasn't done that. He, he certainly made points. He certainly... Uh, taken his position with these players, but in a game like this, a big game like this, to play those four players, four attacking players up front, I think is maybe his crowning uh, lineup of the season. The Spurs' performance may have been better and more convincing, etc., but this was maybe a piece de resistance in terms of picking a lineup that swung a game, and as Tim said, uh, it was Solskjaer who had to blink first and change his yep. lineup, which was a concession. And I, I, I have this picture of the two of them, uh, Emery handing in his team sheet through Steve Bold or whatever to the uh, the ref before the game, and Solskjaer asking, "Can he get take his back? He wants to do a slight redo." And the ref's <laughs> like, "No, sorry, pal, it's in." So yeah, can I? I, can I yeah, like, please really- fire away quickly just add something on Maitland-Niles and potentially Mkhitaryan because I think that's an important point as well. Solskjaer started with Pogba on the left wing. What mm-hmm. does that tell you? He saw Arsenal's right-hand side as because Pogba never mm-hmm. plays on the left wing, but he saw the right-hand side. 
I think potentially defensively, he probably thought, right, Mustafi's at right back. I'm I'm going to put Pogba on him, see how he likes that. And he probably thought, and Mkhitaryan on the right wing has probably been Arsenal's best player the last few weeks. Well, let's see how he deals with Pogba there. And then when neither of them are there, it changes things quite drastically. Yeah, I I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that that surprised him. But also, you know, the biggest difference, I think, between Mustafi and Maitland-Niles, apart from the fact that one is um, a, a clown and the other is a sentient human footballer, um, is that... No, it's just true. But is that uh, Maitland-Niles is a really good stand-up tackler. He does not go to ground. I can't think of a time he went to ground, honestly. I mean, maybe there was like a a saving, a late saving tackle that I'm, I'm thinking of. I'm picturing, you know, where the, he kicked the ball out of play, but like, yeah, yeah. In the area. Exactly. But, but I mean, he does stand up and tackle and he handles the duels. Well, when he's in position, when he goes to sleep, he's got a problem. And on the 92nd minute, he went completely to sleep and let Rashford get open for a point blank header. By that point, the game was won, So it didn't matter. But like, yeah, I, I think the fact that he's a good stand up tackler makes a big, big difference because, a guy like Pogba can ride a challenge, can dink the ball over a sliding challenge, can get around Mustafi, and once he throws himself to the ground, you know, you're really outnumbered. Now, we will come on to the part of the game where we gave up some big chances. I don't want to get to that yet. Clive, one of the things I want to ask you about this lineup is this. Paul made a good point. It may be the piss de resistance, as he was saying. Um, piss de resistance, piss yeah. of resistance is what that means. Um, but anyway, uh, enough about adult diapers. When... when um, you know, when you get the lineup right and then you say, wow, what, a, what an amazing lineup. And you look at it and you say, well, he picked our two star strikers, our star midfielder, our star number 10, and we're patting him on the back. Now, we are patting him on the back because we feel we got it right. But what I want to ask you is, is there something about the teaching he's done, the training he's done, the building and work he's done all this season that makes picking those guys now? viable in a game like this whereas four or five months ago when everyone was pulling their hair out going why won't you just fucking pick ramsey and ozil it wasn't viable what has changed in your mind that that makes picking them now such a heroic and successful decision whereas it wasn't months ago well he's set up an accountability structure isn't he right so he's made people accountable for what they do and he's not picking them on reputation so You've only got to see Mezzers or running around, trying to make tackles, trying to win headers, working behind the ball, getting goal side to block off passing lanes. And a few weeks ago, people were saying, well, you don't want Ozil running around. I was never one for that. It's all about managing the individuals. The way he's managed Ozil and Ramsey's minutes in particular has been excellent, and the previous manager didn't do that. The accountability was different. The whole accountability structure was different. So now he's able to pick these artisans and he can say to him, I need you to refill into centre midfield, much like he did in the uh, 2016 Cup final, I think it was, versus Chelsea. We refilled into midfield. So everyone was ahead of the ball apart from Shaka, and then we refilled back in. The amount of times that Lacazette refilled, the amount of times that Bamiyang refilled, everybody came back and tackled from the wrong side. And it was a very hard-working effort. Then they reset starting positions up high, trying to make Manchester United go backwards for a key period. Once we had the goal, then we settled into a different shape. I, I think it's, you know you know me, I, I'm all about team and, and seeing the team ethic. And when I see players trying to do the right thing for the team, I almost don't care about times they get robbed and then they have to come out and, and save us a couple of times. I don't care about the, the errant passes in a windy day when the rain was piling down. All you think about is the intent to play 
and the fact that there's a common goal amongst the team and they all knew what they were trying to achieve. I do feel playing the two strikers was something that we sort of touched on in the last podcast was a Just genius Just say step. you called it. Don't say we touched on it in the last pod. <laughs> Gloat a little. You're making me look nah, bad. No, 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 no. Well, I, I felt it because we, we spoke about the emotional side of things, didn't we? And we actually saw that play out almost exactly as we sort of spoke about last time. Because I do think they are they are two emotional forwards. But I'll tell you now, that the, I know there was, there was many, many good performances, but I felt the partnership that they put on was the match winner, was the differentiator. And then with this game, I, I did go to the cup game. And I, on that day, everyone was sort of screaming we should go for a three at the back because they played two split fours with one in behind. And they kept our centre-backs stretching out to wide angles. Our full-backs were too thick on the day. They kept pushing on. And so there was space for Lukaku. We made Lukaku look like something something else out there. And, um, and they ripped us to pieces. And... Um, so the back three was a good idea to stop that threat. If you watch Manchester United in the game before, they played a 4-4-2, and they have emphasised their two forwards. So it's their two forwards versus our two forwards. And on the day, our two forwards were more effective, I think. But we had no Lindelof running around in our defence this time. right? So um, Lindelof got killed by... Lacazette in particular on that right-hand channel. They had to swap him around just to try to alleviate the pressure on him. And it, and it worked for us. I think the trick was getting Ozil in behind Matic early on, which I thought was 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 smart. And and we just pushed him back. But the real trick, Elliot, I know you may come on to this, the real trick for me was recognising when we were under pressure, then going to plan B, dropping in, and doing exactly what Manchester United have done to us so many times. They have won games against us when we've had all the chances and all the play. And we actually turned it around and beat them with minimal possession. But our chance creation was good. We were just as dangerous as them. And we had the ability to travel and transition up the pitch. And, and it was beautiful to watch. I totally agree, Clive. And I, I think... The one thing that has come up in the wake of this game is there's been, I think, some analysis of the game, some from journalists, some from Match of the Day, some from Arsenal fans, too, saying that we sort of rode our luck. And I see where that analysis comes from. They had some big chances that on another day, Leno doesn't get there and we're behind or, you know, we fall behind. And I I can totally see that. But, Tim, I still look at this game through the lens of one that I felt we were the ones writing the story. We were the dominant force, that we were dangerous, we had what, eight shots in the first 25 minutes. We had those crosses that flashed past the near post and the far post that Lacazette and Aubameyang just missed getting on the end of. So for you, is this a case of a game where we wrote our luck more? Or do you think that the aggressiveness with which we played and the sort of control that we showed made us worthy winners in the, in the, sort of in the long run? Um, I, th- I think it's a mixture of both. I think whenever these games are played, nearly always they're close games that are won by small details. And I, I just think um, th- this might be... Well, actually, so, no, there, there was like a quite fair analysis last season when we lost at home to Manchester United and pretty much everyone said we didn't deserve to lose. And uh, you, you could make the same argument about that game where United got two early goals and then they sat back... And of course, when you take the lead and you sit back a bit, you're you're going to concede chances. And you know what? You're going to concede chances anyway because you're playing a really big team. That's that's just how these games go, and they're usually swung on small details. And the, 
the most prominent of those small day details is usually who scores first. And that's why teams come back into it and get chances because they've gone behind and they have to kind of go for it. Um, so I think that's that's what happened here. I think basically we controlled the first 20 minutes. Um, we got the goal. Then United made, um, you know, made a bit of a, a bit of a tactical switch. And where I think we're nearly always vulnerable, and we were vulnerable in this game, is, you know, you've seen the stats about the amount of goals we concede in the last few minutes of the first half. Mm-hmm. And that, a bit like Spurs, a bit like United, we didn't actually concede, but I was I was very glad to hear the halftime whistle, basically. So um, I, I think there's a lot of that going on, but I, I, I think you're right. I think um, we were then able to play on the counter and kind of sit back a bit. So yes, we were the ones kind of dictating to that extent. Uh, look, yeah, obviously, if United score any one of those chances, we've probably got a very different game, but... You know, we could have lost this game 2-0 and, you know, that Xhaka shot could just whistle past the post and we could have been saying, oh, if that had gone in, then, you know, this this is this is a totally And alarm bells game. would have been ringing or yeah. horns would have been blowing or something, that's for sure. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. I, I guess the, the point is, though, that, like, for me, um, you know, during the Project 24 or whatever, Project 22, it wound up being, there were a lot of games we won where I felt we weren't aggressive enough. We didn't play effectively in the attacking half. And so we wound up having to ride our luck defensively because we're not a great team defensively. And I guess, Tim, what I'm saying is for you, if we're going to win, lose, or draw a game, wouldn't you rather see us playing with this mentality and this approach? Yeah. I mean, we're we're always going to have our vulnerabilities defensively, but at least I felt that we had an aggressive attack-oriented approach here yeah. that had United on the back foot. And for me, that's kind of good enough. Yeah, yeah, and and also I've I've liked um, probably why I've I've liked our setup in a lot of these big games. I just like it when Arsenal are aggressive off the ball yeah. as well, mm-hmm. and that that doesn't mean we're going to get everything right. But I think I I look at that defence. I look at guys like Socrates and Koscielny and um uh, and you know Maitland Niles. I, I I know like a lot of the defending was last ditch, but I I kind of think quite a lot of the time Arsenal are better um, like that because I I just. I just feel like when you give those players a job to do uh, and, you know, if it's right, go out and be aggressive and get in their faces. Yeah, that that leaves you vulnerable to leaving space. But I kind of think Arsenal are going to leave space, whatever, uh, whatever you tell them to do. So I'd, I'd much rather much rather we go after teams um, off the ball and I can I can live with uh, the odd gap that that leaves. But I, I think it suits the players we have. I think it. Um, I think it really works for us, and my my kind of hope coming out of this game is is you know that maybe you and I Emery will think, well, if I can do that against Man United, you know, I can Crystal Palace at home, for example, or Newcastle at home in April, I I can do it for them um, as well, and uh, yeah, I I hope this convinces him. I know he has a plan for every game, and I think that's kind of fine, but I, I hope this convinces him that he can open up a little bit more for some of those games. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, he it plays into the strength of the, the players we have. It's not always going to work because we're not great defensively and we're not always going to be great off the ball. You can't just learn that overnight. But I love the way we were cutting off passing lanes, uh, closing down men early, taking the ball off them and creating chances in transition. Um, you know, and I thought that we were going to see a lot more of that this season, but we have seen it in big games, to be fair. And I think... You know, where Emery has really shined is in the big games, and it shows in the results and the nearly results, too, if you count the one uh, at Wembley. 
Paul, I think we have to talk about Leno. He was extraordinary. And of course, as much as I enjoyed a lot of the way we approached this game, when we did make mistakes, when we didn't get to the ball, they found it pretty easy to get him behind on a couple of occasions. And Lukaku, Lukaku, Lukaku had two big chances that Leno did brilliantly. Once down low with his hand, once with his feet. Um, you know, had a couple other great saves throughout the game. And I think he could have been our man of the match. Certainly wouldn't have been a wrong choice. I think for Arsenal fans, understanding how to evaluate a brilliant goalkeeper performance is sort of a new phenomenon. It somehow seems like you're being critical of your team if you say your goalkeeper was the best player on the pitch, but your goalkeeper is one of your players, right? Like, like so why, why should we be embarrassed to say our goalkeeper was the best guy on the pitch? That's a great thing. It means we have a goalkeeper who helped keep us in a game and helped us win a game. I think it's going to take time for us to adjust to that, but... For you, is Leno potentially the star of the match? Yeah, to me, he was man of the match. Um, he kept us in it. He This was a game he um, saved us points on, uh, may have been the key player overall. And that's two huge performances in three games now. I mean, he didn't do much wrong against Wren, but I mean, he was he was big against Spurs. He was big in this game. We talked about at the end of the Spurs match that that might be a catalyst for him to come up a level. We'd kind of maybe been a little bit critical of him up until the Spurs game as being good, but not great. Uh, I think we said he was perfect for our style. And, you know, maybe a 7 out of 10 as a across-the-board keeper. Well, not lately. And if this this if he can maintain this level, if this is an inflection point for his performances, then, you know, uh, I joked uh, the last time about calling him David Delano. Well, it's a lot more appropriate in this comparison of a game. Um, so, I mean, he had a stormer. And I think to, it was interesting as well hearing, I think it was Carraher, before the game started saying something about he didn't think much of our centre-backs for this game. And I'm like, really? This is kind of as good as it gets with, uh, all right, it's three at the back, but it's Koscielny, Socrates, and Nacho, obviously. And I don't know what there is to criticise, but he didn't think much of it. But I was expecting quite a bit from this this uh, three in front of Leno. And, you know, when the, le- when the keeper gets slammed, we'll often say, well, who's in front of him? Um, we had a somewhat porous midfield, but a strong uh, set of three centre-backs in front of him. And, uh, you know, contrasting fortunes, you look at so- Socrates, what a week he's had alongside Leno. Man of the match, truly against Spurs. Um, but this was, in some ways, as tricky and capable a performance from him. Again, like the Ren match, he gets the early yellow. Um, f- football's a funny business. He, he gets the wrong side of it with Ren, but he has to walk a tightrope for this whole game. And I think he did really well on that basis after getting an early yellow and shows, you know, the guy does have a cool head and they had to manage it between the three of them. So, I think you got to look at the four guys at the back and say uh, maybe it's no coincidence that now that we're we've got a couple of centre backs that that he that Leno can trust and that trust him, it's really beginning to click and confidence is beginning to soar. So it was lovely to see. Yeah, you know it's sort of ironic. I mean, everybody's thrilled about Ganduzi as a future superstar that we got for a bargain at nineteen, and Torreira was a steal, a defensive midfielder we've needed all along for you know a, a reasonable fee, and he's just twenty-two. Ironically, the 
the deals of the decade may have been the Socrates and Leno deals in a sense. When you look at what Liverpool paid for Van Dyke and Allison, what you know Chelsea wound up having to do for for Kepa. Now, granted, they moved on Courtois. You know, if you go back a little, you know what City have spent on defenders and 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 goalkeepers. And I mean, Leno looks like he's certainly so far has looked superior to Kepa. I don't think he's out of his depth with any of the other top six keepers. I would say he's been better than Lloris this season as well. Um, you know, and and for a smooth forty million less. And Socrates, look, I don't think he's been su- superior. Sterling, I think he's been very solid and has had games where he's bordered on spectacular. I thought he was really, really good in this game. And you know, we tend to think of thirty as sort of the end of a career, but for center backs. I think you can say that their careers extend a little longer. Now, he does rely on his pace a bit, and he has more pace than you'd expect. So maybe he might decline a little quicker. But I, I think, you know, we may have found a bargain there as well, not having to spend, you know, 60 million pounds to get him. So two players that have proven very important and in with the benefit of hindsight look like very savvy buys. So it's great to see that. And, you know, it will be a big miss not having Socrates on Thursday, obviously. Clive, let's talk about the strikers again for a minute. I know you mentioned it before, but, you know, I really thought... Lacazette got a lot of praise for this game, and I think he deserved it. He had a lot of good moves. He had that one really tricky move where he got past like three guys, gave it to Aubameyang, and Aubameyang's touch back to him was just a little bit heavy. But I thought this game was the quintessential example of what they do differently. Aubameyang running the channels, finding spaces, pulling defenders out of position, Lacazette just being so dogged and determined and tricking his way past players, bullying his way past players, being physical you know, on the ball, harrying back. I think they are really a yin to each other's yang. And while what Lacazette does is probably easier to spot than Aubameyang, I think they're both so important in the way they do opposite tasks. I mean, do you feel that they complemented each other really well in this game and that, you know, Lacazette certainly sparkled with some of his work on the ball? Yeah, I mean, I look at influence and impact and look how they influence the game. Look how they influence Manchester United players. Right? That's the main thing you look for, Elliot, right? So I looked at their centre backs and you know, first run down the side, Lacazette takes Smalling for a run. Smalling does quite well. Lacazette who's run, sorry, Abamyang who's run down the behind the goal. And you're thinking, okay, that, that that's good. We're running Smalling back. The next time he gets run back, he's not so sharp. Right? Next time we isolate Lindelof. And I thought Lacazette killed Lindelof, right? So, so what this does is this keeps Luke Shaw back. They've got to bring him round. Right? Luke Shaw, he's like a, he's like, he runs downhill. It's important you keep him back because that allows Maitland-Niles to settle into the game, right? Because he's a, he's a little bit um, young, shall we say. I know I did listen to what James said about him and I feel you know, sometimes footballers, they're almost overly mature. And you often find you get you do find players who are eighteen could do things that we can do at eighteen. But Maitland Niles, even though he's twenty twenty one, I actually think he's twenty twenty one going on eighteen. I think he's quite immature. Uh, I call him like a groupie. I think he just needs to feel like he belongs here. And I don't I think he still find that transition um Interesting. So I won't say difficult. I just think it's a, it's a bit peak and troughs. But when he has his moment like he did today, having that period to settle was important for him. And then he grew into the game. And so there's always a knock-on effect. And I just felt having those two strikers on the pitch changed the emphasis of where the game was played. And I think that's important. And that made them think about themselves. You had to prick Manchester United's confidence. There was hardly a person in the Western world that felt 
Manchester United would lose that game. Due to what happened in the week, there was on the crest of a wave. I think you'll find um, one on this very panel. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, uh, and, and basically what, but all of, you know, all of us sort of sneakily felt that um, we would win. And, and there's no, there's no method to that. Right? It's just that there comes a point when that run's going to end and you just felt that we've had a lot of bad luck recently. And I just felt that maybe by changing the emphasis a little bit further forward, we go into their, into their weakness. And let's just forget the bads. Let's look at the names. We're talking Smalling, Lindelof, Ashley Young. This is not like, you know, Vidic and Ferdinand here. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You've got to remember who they are and go for them. You know, we're talking about Dallow, a promising player on the right-hand side. He's really a fullback in front of a fullback, right? So, um, but he's not, he's not, you know, he's, he's not Beckham out there. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so you just got to remember who they are. And I think our forwards really reminded them who we were. And then Ozil did his bit early in the game. Ramsey did his bit just outworking everybody else. And for me, the player, the, the real, now we've all, there's many stars, but the one I really sort of, my eye went to was Shaka, actually. I thought, but he, he looked good. But why did he look good? Because he had wingbacks on the outside to pass to. He had two forwards to hit. He had Ozil to hit. And every time he got into a bit of trouble, Ramsey ran around him and basically helped bail him out of trouble by tackling back. And so I do think the two fours, yes, we know what they play like. But what they did is they really made Manchester United adjust. And they really affected their confidence for at least the first 40 minutes. By then, the story of the game was told. We had what we wanted. And then now we could go to plan B later in the game, which was to bring on a couple of ball carriers and then freshen up with a with a centre forward. I'm sure you'll get onto that in substitutions later. But um, yeah, obviously the two strikers, top, top, top players. We're going nowhere without them. Eight games to go. We need those two feeling just like they're feeling today. Yeah, and I mean the, the funny thing is there was some profligacy there. There was some bad touches. There were some you know moments where Lacazette shot where he maybe could have passed. Moments where Aubameyang passed where he maybe could have shot. But in the end, him getting the goal could prove really important for Thursday and beyond. And we'll come to that in a bit. Um, you know, I think with Shaka, he's a player that I just feel likes to have the game in front of him. And when he can see the game in front of him, I think he does real well. When he has to start chasing back towards his goal, when he has players running past him, when he has to move his feet, I'm not sure he's as good at that. One thing he did in this game that I liked that he didn't used to do, he was a little more willing to, with the ball at his feet, take a step forward into midfield or step around a guy. There was the one time he kind of bypassed Pogba, I believe, and Pogba took a swipe at him and just gave up the yellow card because he was frustrated getting beat by him. And he showed a lot of strength on the ball, which is not something he always does. The the back five, back three thing really seems to suit him because he loves to pick the ball up about halfway, look up and whip those balls to to Kolasinac in the in the channels, you know, in the in the wide spaces, and like he loves that and pass. Had his final third pass numbers, yeah, his final yeah. third entries. I mean, that's what he's really looking for. Is what did the stats on stats say about him? Um, so Tim, I mean, he, you know, a, a good game for him. Obviously, he gets that goal mm-hmm. and and. I don't think you have to analyze Swerve on a ball. I don't think there's a lot to say other than De Gea was fooled by it and it goes in. But, you know, obviously such an important first goal lets us play the game a little bit differently. And, you know, two players that come out of this game, I think with a lot of credit, are Ozil and Ramsey. Ramsey leads Mm -hmm. us in tackles. Ozil had four chances created, you know, leading all players. You know, for you, how important has this journey been, so to speak, to use a silly word, 
back to Ramsey and Ozil and how critical do you think it is not just for this game but going forward that we seem to arrive at a point in the season now where these two are integrated valued and look like they're set to contribute yeah and it's it's all happened quite quickly hasn't it maybe not so much with Ramsey I, I feel like around new year that funnily enough that Blackpool game as much as it was only Blackpool where he kind of dropped him into that midfield too and you know basically asked Ramsey to look after some some young players around him which he did very very well I think that you know because earlier in the season I was certainly looking at it and just going well Ramsey just doesn't really fit what Emery wants to do but he's he's learned it slowly well I, I say slowly he's learned it fairly quickly actually but he's learned and and it looks like the the nascent signs are quite good that maybe Ozil um, as well. C- look, because at the end of the day, if you're Mesut Ozil, he said he wants to stay at the club, right? And I'm I'm sure that's because of the salary. But if he's gonna, you know, if he really wants to dig his heels in and stay at the club, then he might as well <laughs> just try and do what the manager wants because I'm sure he'd rather play at, stay at the club and play than stay at the club and not play. And uh, he is getting more games. And, and, you know, Emery said a few weeks ago it was also about his availability for training, which I think was the first little um, kind of little tug back of the curtain uh, just to show people what was going on. But he's been playing um, recently, which which suggests that, you know, we, we heard those reports, didn't we, over New Year from, you know, people who, who got a kind of inside track on the club a little bit saying you know he's working hard he's you know he's in the gym he's doing the hours and uh you know maybe maybe we're seeing we're seeing the merits of that i mean what it what it does mean as well i mean like you say i think you're right to to point to the cup final for example a couple of years ago where we played three five two and you know jacques uh well we sorry we played a back three with with jacques and ramsey and and Ozil in there and uh and and that's kind of and and look, it just gives us options because I, I don't think for one minute that that's it. They're all going to start every game now. They're not. It's going to be, we know by now that it's different different strokes for different folks, horses for courses and all of that. But he's he's got that now in his, in his armory. He knows that he can do that as and when, if and when he wants to do. And it just makes us even more unpredictable for other managers as well. And I, I think about a game like Wolves, for example. And Wolves are a really, really smart counter-attacking team, which is why they're really good against the big teams and why they're utter dog shit against the bad teams because they they really like to counter-attack. And I, you know, I look at maybe going to the Molyneux and if, if, you're, uh, if you're Nuno Santo, like, what, what do you do? What's your plan? Um, and, you know, that's not to say I, I think we'll sweep all before us and win every game because we're so unpredictable, but it just it just adds something. Um, it's it's a real shame about Ramsey because I think he really, really fits in now. And, uh, you you got to love the that's... social media program, too. After Spurs, he's like, my last North London derby, yeah. I'll miss it. Oh, my last game against Manchester United in an Arsenal it's... shirt, I'll miss it. It's like, we get it. We're crying. It's okay. Yeah, Stop yeah. it. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really unfortunate, isn't it? Because he, he really, really fits in now. And I think Emery realizes what a useful player he is in in different roles as well. Because he played this midfield role. And I tell you what, I, I think 
I mean, obviously, I don't know and I'll never know, but I really think the the challenge of going up against Pogba really motivated him because, you know, they're fairly similar types of player. And I, I think big players do this. I don't think you can underestimate the the kind of the value of competition. I, I really think Ramsey went into this game thinking, no, I, you know, I Pogba's getting all the hype and, you know, maybe because he was at Juve and everything, I think he was thinking, no, I, I, I want to leave my mark today. And ultimately, Ramsey's got a big move coming up and, and we're all talking about how professional he's being. But at the same time, he's, you know, he's he's been at Arsenal for 11 years since he was a teenager. He's got a big move coming up to a big, big European club who expect to be challenging to win the Champions League and to walk their domestic league. And I'm sure he's probably thinking, I've got to prove I'm up to this because all the Juve fans are watching me now and they want to see what they've got. And so I'm not slacking off for three months um, while I just like work out my notice. I want to show I want to show them that I'm a good player because they've got their eyes on me at the moment. And uh, yeah, I think we saw especially from him. It's the phrase we use all the time, isn't it? We gave him a job and he did it. And I, I think he's always been like that. I really do. I just think a lot of the time Wenger probably just didn't really give him a job other than Thank go you out too. and enjoy yourself. So didn't give him a yeah. job. And that's what that's what disrupted us. You know, so, um, but but I I think unfairly, Ramsey has been had the charge leveled at yep. him that he oh Agreed. he just abandons midfield and wants to just run into the box and doesn't want to be a midfielder and I I don't think that's fair at all. No, Elliot, it's about accountability. It's about accountability. If you want to play, just like Gwen Doozy's found out, if you want to play, do things properly. If you don't do things properly, you don't play. Right, that's simple. That is the one trick a manager. I totally has. agree with you. And he has done that to almost. Every player at some point has been substituted, hooked, left out for one game. You call it rotated, rested. He's setting up a level of accountability, and that's exactly what I've wanted to see for many years. Yeah, no, look, I totally agree with you. Paul, why don't you jump in here? I mean, I, I think for me, the the only – look, and I'm not a, a Ramsey, quote, fanboy, so to speak. Like, I have had at times been frustrated by him as a player, but overall I see his quality. I think he is a player who, under the Arsene Wenger mindset, was told – make the the secondary run into the box, you know, be there to score goals. Um, I think he's he was given a, a more disciplined role in this game to break up play and, to, you know, destroy things. And I, I think in general he is someone who, who does try to play out the, the responsibilities that he's given. Um, he's played all over the pitch for us over many years. He's, you know, he's been played a right wing, a support striker, number 10, a, a deep line playmaker, central midfielder. I mean, he's been, he's been all of it. So, I mean, for you, how much of this is Ramsey finally having the man who can coach him up or how much of it is just, you know, him doing what he's always done, which is professionally try to fill the, the role that's given to him? Yeah, look, uh, I think it's both. Uh, Emery hasn't asked him to be a miracle worker, which is kind of, what I, I don't think he had a, a, the problem of not having a job with ours, and I think he had a problem of ha- being given too many jobs, jobs at the same yeah. time. Um, you know, score goals, go cover the entire midfield, cover back for the other midfielders not doing his job. That's just something yeah. like that. Yeah, and we love the fact that he's a second striker too. I mean, for fuck's sake. Um, so that on the one hand, that was part of the the arson issue. Uh, Emery's given him a more defined role that plays to his strength. But uh, I would, you know, for all the, um, if I differ a little bit with Tim, um, 
for all the he's got the move to Juve or, you know, uh, other people saying, well, it's come to the end of the season and he likes the club and stuff. So why wouldn't he put in these kinds of performances? Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever changed job to a glory job that's coming up ahead of them. It is so difficult to just flick a switch and do it. You know, what you might want to do, what you might want to feel is not the same as what you actually feel. There's tremendous discipline and professionalism, which I think has been the hallmark of Ramsey, as Tim said. Um, and I would say nine out of ten players couldn't do what he's doing doing right now, even with the same move to the same options. Um, he gives the most boring, functional interviews at the end of games and i think it's all part of the one thing he's just a very serious fella who wants to save the world rescue the rhinos and god damn it he'll do it and uh while his mind and his heart may be drifting off to juve he's not letting that happen i mean he's totally wired into these games he you could see how intense he was against spurs and you know it's easy to put out the social media post but he does his talking on the pitch first, so fair fucks to him. And he did in this game, he ran further, he made more sprints, he made more tackles, he did more interceptions. I mean, uh, I've always liked or loved Ramsey. This season, uh, you know, when you come to the legend debate, uh, he's making a really strong fucking case that it wasn't just a game here or a performance there or a season there. He's just a quality guy. We'll have more time to discuss that on the Juve podcast that we switch this to next season. So it's no problem. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, before I get to you, Clive, Tim, I just want to ask you a question about in the stadium. When we get the penalty awarded to us, which I think it is, like, you know what's funny? When you say a penalty is soft, that doesn't mean you're not saying it isn't a penalty, right? So, like, mm. I thought it was a soft penalty. Not, not a penalty, just a soft penalty. Mm. Meaning, essentially, you know, he wasn't two-footed in the box and had his kneecaps taken no, out. You know, it, he was shoved it, down. Could I just say, it's like a sofa. Just because it's a soft sofa does not mean it's not a sofa. Yeah. that Yeah, it's, it's like a tree. Just because it's a short yeah. tree doesn't mean it's not a tree. It's like a wall. Just, I don't know where we're going with this. Uh, <laughs> but Tim, what I wanted to get your take on, actually, is not refereeing decisions, which I know is your first love, but just the reaction to Lacazette giving it to Aubameyang in the stadium. <laughs> I mean, how palpable was the anxiety when people realized, oh my God, he's given it to Aubameyang? Um, I, I'm not sure how palpable it was because I was just feeling it entirely myself. <laughs> um, and that, that makes it, you get a better feel for a stadium when they feel something that you don't, you know, like when everyone's yelling at the goalkeeper for not thumping it. 70 yards out of play that I feel that's palpable but when I feel that anxiety I I, I probably don't absorb how much everyone else did but because Lacazette went towards the ball and uh, that, you know I, I don't know how it came across on TV but certainly where I was and probably because I was the one saying it it was you know and and I I prefaced this by saying I wasn't yelling it at the top of my voice or getting angry, but I was just going, please let Lacazette take this, please let Lacazette <laughs> take this. And I saw him pick up the ball and then give it to Aubameyang. And I, I just kind of thought, oh, Christ. But then I thought, OK, you know, fair enough. He wants it. That's absolutely fine. Missed penalties happen. And even though I had questions about his technique last week and everything else, that's fine. Mistakes happen. It doesn't mean that you should, you know, never be allowed to try again. Um I'm not sure 
even though it went in, I'm I'm still not sure I'm sure about the penalty, but you know, I, I went through that last week and there's there's no point in doing it again this week, not least because it went in. But yeah, yeah I, I think everyone was just going, uh, you know, it wasn't a shout in unison, but you could there was a lot of low mumbling. And I think I think the mumbling was, please let it be Lacazette. Please let it, oh, fuck, he's giving it to a bunny. <laughs> yeah, I, well, so I have a couple thoughts on this. And, and then, Clive, I want to get your take on the, the approach because I have thoughts on that too. I have thoughts on lots of things, if anybody's interested. Um, so first of all, Lacazette is an elite penalty taker, as far as I know. He took a lot of them before he came to Arsenal. He scored a lot of them every season, and his rate, I do know his conversion rate on penalties, is better than Aubameyang. So while it may be um, emotionally great that he gave it to Aubameyang and helps like the team spirit, I think you can make an argument that Lacazette should be our first penalty taker and he should have taken it there. Um, Now that's obviously raining on everybody's parade a little bit. In the end, I'm glad it went the way it did. My other theory is, look, Waiting for the keeper to go down first, in theory, is the single best way to take a penalty possible. Because once the keeper goes down, it's simple. You just tap it the other direction. You can't save it. Um, I think it looks a lot riskier because the finish is not clean. It's not clinical. But if the keeper has gone down, you've beaten him. You've won. So, you know, I think it's always going to look a little less well struck. But if you're staring at the keeper and he goes down, all you have to do is tap at the other place. And that's what Aubameyang did. So, Clive, I want to get your take on that. I mean, a, a penalty doesn't have to fly into the upper corner. It just has to go in. And is there any better way of ensuring it's going to go in than taking it after the keeper has gone to ground? Yeah, the best penalties are the one that go in. Let's just clear that one up, right? Um, but Lauren used to do something very, very similar. He'd watch the goalkeeper and he'd just pass it in really slowly. You know, all you, so I did, I'm, I'm a bit guided, actually. I didn't spot this against Spurs, and I wish I had a done because it would have been really good. But if you watch the Spurs penalty, he actually runs through, and at the last second, he looks down at the ball. And when he looks up, the picture's changed and he's blown in his moment. He hasn't been able to see what the keeper's going to do. So he's put the ball one side of him and the keeper's just stood down and, and collected it. Right, so, so that was his mistake. On this one, he didn't take his eyes off the keeper. So as soon as you look at that, so what are you looking for as you're running up? So the first thing you want to do, you want to, you practice your stride pattern as you run up. You don't look at the ball. So you don't run up too aggressively because you run up too aggressively, you can put your feet down in the wrong position and not have control of where you're going to strike it. So he has a practice stride pattern. He goes up, looks at the goalkeeper, and you can just look at things at where the goalkeeper puts his weight, which leg he puts his weight on, as soon as he puts his, his weight onto his right leg, that means he's going to his left, right? So very much so. And little things like that. You can just see which way he's going, but you can only see that if you keep your eyes on him. And then as soon as you see that, you can put the ball anywhere you like. If someone's flat-footed, going one direction, they can't change. It doesn't matter if it goes one foot by foot or six foot, it's going in. But the trick is really not to take your eyes off the keeper. And if you watch the Spurs one again, you can just see him look down. And when he looks up, the pictures change, and that's where he got confused. That's a brave way to do it. I mean, the bravery to do that. Can you imagine if you missed that one and we lost, we drew the game? You're literally looking at or lost the game. You're literally saying to everybody, you had the chance to get so many points against Man United and Spurs and you potentially blew it twice. I'm not sure your career comes back from that at Arsenal, right? So I think it's an incredibly brave thing to do, incredibly supportive thing to do by Lacazette. 
And now the result is we have two strikers, top form, top confidence, and the upcoming games coming up, we're all looking forward to them with a little bit of um, excitement. Yeah, and by the way, I mean, Aubameyang's not 19. He didn't decide to start taking penalties like this last month, right? I presume that someone worked on him with it. He decided they, it's the way to go. They threw a stat out. They threw yeah. a stat out here before the game. I think it was 16 of his last 23 penalties he scored. So it's not like... It's not great. Club. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not like, you know, I'm going to bet my house on it. But um, I don't know what style he's chosen each of those. But they threw that out just as he's walking up to take it, right? So, um, so yeah, it's 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 a work in progress, shall we say? Yeah, I guess what I would my my point, and that sort of leans back to my point also that Lacazette should be the penalty taker, you know, not because I hate Aubameyang, whom I love, but because Lacazette is better at him. But I think if you decide that my style is I wait for the keeper to go down, the fact that you missed against Spurs, the last thing you want to do is change your style in the heat of the moment against United at home. You know, you got to stick with your strategy. Paul, sort of quick thoughts on on the Aubameyang taking and how he took a penalty? Yeah, I mean, I think we're making a huge assumption here with uh, Lacazette doing him a favor. There's every possibility he was trying to do double quits and fuck up his mind because, like, what would you do? You'd give him the ball and and you know let him hang himself so i'm not so convinced and especially if he's going to know that uh like uh obamyang's done six 20, 16 out of 23 is not very good is it um, Wait, so you're saying and, lacazette was trying to give him enough rope to hang himself <laughs> yeah he's trying to fuck him what you're, you're, this no, is his I'm rival in the, no listen this i'm, I'm not seeing that mate <laughs> that's, a, the, that's a bold take <laughs> we find it, it are, took us about an hour but we found the fire <laughs> okay yeah i mean they're like best just friends. think about it yeah they're a goal up he's feeling good about things he's like i'm gonna fuck him good give him the ball it didn't, i mean apparently but uh, so do you think he was do you think he was gutted when he scored it <laughs> Aubameyang had no idea he was going to take it or he would have practiced a different kind of penalty. There's a reason he did exactly the same penalty. It's because he didn't think he was taking it today. So that's my theory. I, I, th- I thought they kind of both went towards the ball. I th- I th- I, so I th- my kind of take on it is there are two things going on here. One, the reason Aubameyang's taking the penalties is because he really wants to win the golden boot. I think he really, really wants that. Secondly... I don't know if you remember last season we played Stoke and Aubameyang had scored twice and we got a penalty in the last minute and he gave it to Lacazette and he gave up the chance of a hat-trick because Lacazette hadn't yep. scored for a while. He was low on confidence. And I, I wonder if there was a little bit of uh, kind of returning the favour. Yeah, um, exactly it, Tim. Exactly yeah. Not to mention that, I mean, Aubameyang is in the tiniest bit of a rut, but I think it's important to contextualise the rut. I, look, I am an Aubameyang apologist, guilty, okay? But the guy is elite at one thing, getting great chances to score. That's what he's elite at. He is not an elite finisher, nor has he ever been. He gets an unbelievable amount of scoring chances, which is in and of itself arguably the most important skill in all of football. You say, well, finishing is more important. Well, most players finish roughly the chances they're supposed to. So right now, leading the Premier League in goals is Sergio Aguero with 18. There's Aubameyang on 17, okay? Now, Aguero's slightly outperforming his XG by 0.48. Aubameyang, admittedly, well underperforming, 1.68 goals under his XG, and a lot of that is a 0.73 he gets for the penalty against Spurs, okay? But here's the thing. 
XG per 90, expected goals per 90. Number one in the league, Aguero at 0.8. Number two in the league, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, 0.76. Okay, right on his heels. The next best are Salah and Kane at 0.62 and 0.61. And then you got to go down to 10th to get to Lacazette, who in and of himself is having a great season. Now, I know there's more to it than just scoring goals and just creating chances. But you get Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang because you want a guy who is elite at creating chances for himself to score and is average at finishing them. And that's basically what he's been this year. The shame of it is, the misses, big ones against Chelsea, a penalty against Spurs, they stick in the mind. They stick in the mind. And I, I think there are a lot of people that think he's sort of a fraud, weirdly, despite being right there for a golden boot and being the top of the... You know, the, the top of the XG90 table when you can say, oh, advanced metrics, please get out of here with that. But I, all I think it shows, again, is that he is he is an elite chance getter. And, and you know, Lacazette does a lot of the other stuff we need a center forward to do. I mean, Clive, just real quick. Do you think that we maybe don't yet appreciate enough what a big skill it is to be that good at getting good chances? Hey, look, I don't think, when I look at Arsenal, I, I look at us and I think, okay, where are we? We've got a new, we've got a new keeper. We've got some aged defenders that we that we know are in departure lounge eventually in their careers at the club. We're rebuilding the midfield with some new young'uns and we've got a couple of people potentially on the way out, or one for certain. And we have these two really good forwards, right? So, and that's it. We have... I, d- I don't see an issue with with um, Aubameyang. I remember that tweet I did last week, and it was quite surprising. I just said, you know, the guy needs a bit of support. Just a little picture of him with a sad face, blah blah blah. And it went it went quite big. But it'd be quite surprising. Maybe you wouldn't be surprising because you watch this stuff. How many people came back and said he's done? He's no good. He missed that penalty. It's crazy. Spurs. I can't believe it. I was I was quite. I was quite shocked. I don't know why I was shocked, but I was quite shocked. It was just a, a harmless thing saying, well, how about we support our player? He needs a, he needs a lift. And the only reason I said it was I just know that wherever, we've got eight games to go, and we all know, we all know that unless those two are scoring, we're not going to get where we want to get. Right? So we need this guy feeling good about himself. And, and so uh, there are some people that just said he's, he's done he's done at our club, all the rest of it. I generally, generally don't understand the binary thinking of people. And I will always respect other people's opinion. But where I have a difference, really, is the is perspective that people take on the game. You know, where does that perspective come from? You know, it doesn't come from any sort of depth. It just comes from a position of um, of hatred, really, and I just don't, I just don't get it. I don't get it. That's not what we're all here for. And, um, so yeah, I was, I was quite disappointed by some of that. But hey, look, as a few days later, I can't find those people anymore on my timeline, and they're probably had a great night out yesterday and and celebrated a, a win against Manchester United at home, which doesn't happen that often, you know. And we should enjoy it, right? So um, yeah, and Bam Yang was definitely part of that. And I look, I realize this is not the time to be going on my why you should love Aubameyang crusade, but I do think it's a day where Lacazette got a lot of credit, and deservedly so. He does so much eye-catching work on the ball in this game, and I just think that, you know, we have two very different strikers, but one of them has an elite skill that happens off the ball, and that can sometimes be hard to appreciate. Um, Well, Tim, a couple of uh, sort of final thoughts here. Um, One of them is just the the distinction between away form and home form is weird to me. 
I cannot explain mm-hmm. it. Now, we did just play an excellent game away to Spurs, I realize, but we also completely shit the bed against Wren. Um, we, we just haven't been convincing all season away to the point at times where we've been dreadful. And overall, you know, we've been great at home. And this is a trend that continues from previous seasons. Do you have any way of explaining beyond just like, oh, the, the, the crowd, it's, you know, it's the crowd. We lift the team at home. And I, I mean, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter, but I tend to think professional mm-hmm. athletes can tune some of that out. Can you explain the, the really striking disparity in our performances home and away? No, not really. Um, I mean, it's 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 a phenomenon like across sports, isn't it? The whole um, home versus away thing, and it and it's it so much more pronounced to... in this sport, though. Like this yeah, is a sport yeah, yeah. where it shows up more than anything. Yeah, 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 and and you know, it's, it's I think just little psychological things, and I, I remember even like Thierry Henry when we moved to the Emirates, saying you know when we struggled at first to adapt to the Emirates, he was he was saying like little things like out the corner of my eye, like the positioning of an advertising hoarding, and he was like at Highbury, I knew how the hoardings lined up, you know, on the pitch, whereas it takes time to get used to that, and I don't I don't know. It it's really weird, isn't it? It's like a, a shared kind of psychological thing where when you're at home you feel a bit emboldened and you feel this kind of almost responsibility to go for games, but when you're away you don't feel that and so the away team also feels a little bit cowed. Um with uh, with Arsenal I think it's maybe a little bit psychological. Um at this point i mean the thing is actually earlier in the season we were a bit better away from home than we have been since christmas and um i'm not sure we were always convincing but we kind of we went to places and won and then i I think around about the crystal palace game maybe in late october we we showed a bit of vulnerability where and for quite a lot of these away games we we kind of start them all right but then peter out you know at liverpool we went one nil up and we all remember how that finished Huddersfield we were very good for the first half an hour and then that peters out you know Palace same kind of deal Southampton we were doing all right and then we lose it we let it all go even Spurs we were completely in control and let them equalize from nothing so I'm not quite sure what it is I'm not quite sure anyone has quite put their finger on what it is that makes our finger hover a little bit more closely to the self-destruct button um away from home um i you know i don't think it's entirely psychological there has to be some kind of tactical explanation but i have to admit i don't know what it is yeah i it's it is really weird clive you you uh you say you have a theory on this you want to hit us with it well i I, I blow my mind i dare you (laughs) tim touched on it right i do think it's emotional i do think it's um how we walk into these stadiums and and if you know that much like you know having the two forwards um play at the weekend because we felt emotionally they needed each other i i do think we got to come up with with a an away day strategy and i do like the back three away from home i don't always think it's necessary at home unless it's against a top 16 with two strikers like manchester united had. but i do think away from home what that does is it protects us to any sort of counter-attack it does make sure that potentially we control the story and we can get closer to the first goal and i think Many people criticise the flexibility of our tactical manager and say that sometimes the players are confused. I say that when we draw or lose, when we win, everyone says what a genius the manager is. I would like to see us settle on something away from home, a little bit closer to what we saw at the weekend. Maybe some of the interior pieces can shuffle, depending on what's required. But I do. if we could keep those three boys fit at the back, 
they are our best three. And then, obviously, we can we, it puts a bit of pressure on our wing-backs. And I think we need to develop a, a swagger away from home, and, and we haven't got that. But I think that will come if we have security at the back door and we can get as much as time as possible with two strikers on the pitch. And I think we go to places then and we say, right, we're here, we're not vulnerable, we're now coming for you. And I And I think... That alone will make people step back and not think Arsenal are an easy touch, and I think that's what's happened. A lots of uh, your, your introduction in the last podcast was really profound. All, <laughs> I, I, I thought it. It's, I thought it's I thought it's brilliant. By the way, oh the, uh, always, the ch- Arsenal charity. <laughs> yeah, but I've always felt well, like Brendan Rodgers worries me. Leicester away, right? It worries me because that's the game that he will use to establish himself with the Leicester fans. Do you know what I mean? And and it just bothers me. We're the top six team. Everyone has their day against Southampton. You know, Brighton last year. I mean, Tim was at these games, right? To, to be fair, mad, Southampton did just have their day against another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know what I mean? They, they go mad over it. And they have their top six day. And it's always us, right? Um, and so we need to take away that vulnerability and be a lot more robust in both mm. ends of the, both boxes. And I think once we start to establish ourselves... And then people will sit away and don't even think they can beat us if we if we go for teams like we did at the weekend. Yeah, I, I mean, it's weird, right? Because there's a part of me that sort of thinks, like, part of the problem away is we tend to be a little more cautious and we're not good at that. You know, that if we were as buccaneering as we are at home, you know, look, you're not going to win every away game. But playing defensively is always our worst approach. So I don't know. I mean, it... Yeah. I just think it's inconsistency. And one last thing, sorry. Mm-hmm. My Spurs mates I was watching the game with at the weekend, they wanted us to win. They wanted us to win because they fear Manchester United's consistency more than they fear You should ours. go name and shame them on a, a Spurs message board, by the way. Yeah, they know that we've got, was it five away games and three at home? Mm-hmm. And they know that we're not good at away. And so this is this is the season. We have to develop something that allows us to go into the away games with confidence to win. And that's here my theory about this, the formation, the setup, um, to give us that confidence and give us that consistency. I do think maybe it's time for a consistent away approach, which I think the players can then feed off of, knowing their roles in that structure. Change the players on the interior, but try to keep your back three in place and your front two on the pitch as much as you can. So okay, two, I think yep, we're about yep. to become very good at away games, or at least good enough, I think. As good as we were at Bate, or as good as we were at Ren, in your no, opinion? I think, I think I know what Paul's going to say, and I agree. <laughs> you uh, so, we were very good at Ren, as you said yourself. Yes, no, we were fantastic. Um, yes, No, we were. We, we just weren't very good I, with 10 joke. men. It was a joke. Yeah, yeah. I do that sometimes. Um, They're not very good. No, so... Two things have happened, I think. Uh, The manager has expanded his options in terms of the quality of players that he can plug and play. Uh, He he used a bit of Ramsey and, to a lesser extent, Ozil earlier in the season, but but in very defined and restricted ways, and similarly with one or two of the other players. Now he's a lot more confident in them, and they're confident in him, which gives them options. Um, We've gone away from picking options at the back because we're in trouble or because we're afraid or because we're conceding to picking them as a way of putting our personality as a proactive move, as an aggressive move against the opponent. And I think these last two, even the Ren game, there was enough of a game there where you said, 
uh, okay, we're not very good with 10 players, but we're actually playing really good football. You take those last three, the good parts of the last three games, we're playing with personality, we have options, we have our best players playing for the largest part, and the manager can go to different lineups, different formats, one striker, two striker, uh, in-game changes, and other managers are reacting to him. He's outsmarted Pochettino and Solskjaer. So I think... He may just have got the timing right, and I think we'll start to see that in away games. Mm. Plus, the focus of the last few games is now we spent two-thirds of the season kind of testing and chopping and changing. And now I think the the manager is not going to be chopping and changing and testing at this stage. He's going to go with what he's got. The players understand it, and I think it'll be a much more defined run-in. That's certainly my hope. But yeah. I do have a feeling it has changed. I, I, you know, I mentioned on a, a previous pod too that I, I, and maybe it was just the last one that you know is this the time of year where maybe he just starts to rely on the guys who have done it before? If you remember, Paul, in our conversation last pod, mm-hmm. actually, I think it was just saying, you know, is this the time now where guys like Ramsey, guys like you know even Ozil, and and you know the players that are experienced who have been there and, and done it before are the guys he leans on, and that maybe we see a little less of Torreira, a little less of Ganduzi, a little less of you know those kinds of players. Um, Maybe even a Wobi to some extent, although I thought a Wobi's cameo was excellent in this game, by the way, and I think he he's really shown his strength both both physically and emotionally. I just wonder, you know, I wonder if he's going to increasingly rely on those more senior, more experienced players. Tim, I want to finish with two quick questions. One, mm. just about this win and in the context of Emery's first season, there have been a lot of ups and a lot of downs this season. There have been things that we didn't like uh, and certainly some things we we did. Regardless of how the season finishes, would you say that the wins in some big games, beating Spurs at home, the draw with Liverpool, mm. beating Chelsea, beating United, getting the great draw at Wembley, which should have been a win. Do you think he's done enough in big games that people will go away from this season having the confidence to give him an, a, another go next season, regardless of what happens now? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and look, obviously, if we lose all of our last eight games, probably not. And oh, Or even one of them. About... Or even one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We've just been talking about how quickly the mood changes from game to game and how quickly opinions change. I think so. I've, I've, I've you know, I, I said before this game, I, I quite fancied us to win this because um, I felt like we got a a good look at Man United in that cup game when perhaps, you know, and, and in the subsequent analysis of that game, I was tearing my hair out, like just kind of, cause you know, usually with these games, it's, Oh, this team won. So everything they did was brilliant. And this team lost so everything they did was stupid and they're idiots. And uh, I, I get really like annoyed with how much analysis there is out there like that. And, and after the cup game, I was just kind of screaming, like both our centre halves went off injured. This is incredibly significant for games like between teams this big. And I, I and this closely matched. And I, I, I felt we were, a bit better in that FA Cup, not brilliant, but like a bit better in that FA Cup game than, than people realised. And I, I thought that we'd have a plan for them. Um, and, and so, yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's just been miles better because even whatever you think of the tactics and this game could have gone either way, both the Spurs games could have gone either way. Chelsea at home, if they had, a decent striker might have gone either way. But what I've just really, really enjoyed is the fact that we compete in these games now. And, um, and that, you know, you turn up and think, yeah, we, we could like, we're going to have a plan for them today. We're not just going to do the same thing we always do. And, 
you know our, our opponents will know exactly what that is and they'll have, and they'll be ready for us it's just even just physically the amount that we compete in these yeah. games has been so much more enjoyable yeah i i don't disagree with that and i think you know i have had my concerns about emery and i voiced them i've also mm-hmm. had some things i've liked about what he's done but one thing we've talked about in seasons before is if you're not going to win the league the european competition you're in or one of the domestic cups and odds are you're not, right? I mean, let's be realistic. Odds are you're going to end a season without a trophy. If that's going to happen, what are the things that you're going to hang your hat on? Beating your rival, right? Beating beating Spurs, beating Chelsea, beating United, beating City. Those are the games that, that you'll go into a, a closed season remembering. And so I think he's done it. He's beaten Chelsea. He's beaten Spurs. He nearly beat them twice. He beat United. You know, and, and all right, not all the big games have gone our way. There were the heavy losses at, at City and Liverpool. But ultimately... I think the big game results have warranted a lot of optimism. So, Tim, then, finally, do you feel this puts us in the driver's seat for for top four? I mean, there's a huge win. United still have Champions League. Chelsea still have Europa League. Spurs still have Champions League. Um, You know, and while normally that would be depressing, I don't see them winning it, so I'm fine with that. Um, We do have a goal difference advantage on all of them except Spurs, who we've actually gotten quite close to. So... At this point, with the fixtures the way they are and the various competitions that we're all still in, do you have us now as as a favorite to finish top four and maybe maybe even third? Yeah, yeah. I do. Well, we're in the box seat definitely um, because we're fourth <laughs> at the moment, and I think you know I I've been saying for a number of weeks I think Tottenham's legs have gone. Um, I I still think they'll probably have enough to get them over the line. That's, kind of a that's feature of Pochettino, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they they've been they've been dragging their legs since New Year. Um, I think I've watched them a lot, and I haven't been impressed once, um, except maybe for like a twenty minute spell against Dortmund. Even in even in that game, I know you know they won it three nil, but they that, that was never a three nil game. I think, I mean, and to their credit, they they've won quite a lot of games without playing very well. But I think that catches up with you. Um, I don't think United have been playing that well recently, which was another reason um, I was, I was, uh, I wouldn't go as far to say confident, but I thought that we could have them. I thought, I thought to myself, if they play like they did against PSG, I think we'll beat them. Um, so I, you know, I, 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 I very much, um, I, I think we are in the box seat, but I don't necessarily think that, that that means it's all going to be plain sailing there'll be right. twists and turns i think there are bad results in all of these teams yeah i agree clive what about you you think we're favorites for top four um nope i don't think we are i think i'm hopeful we'll get there um i spurs are, they've been creaking um may United, i think will, will will come again and i think it's i'm hoping that it's Spurs and Chelsea that don't make it. I think um, mm. that's how I see it going. I think May United will make it. I'd, it's strangely, I agree, Tim, completely about the cup game. I felt that or it's arguable, if without the, the centre-halves going off, it's arguable that basically Manchester United played better yesterday against this weekend than they did in the cup game and they and they, they lost it right so um and i think we were a bit unfortunate with the injuries and we were creaking a little bit so i think they recognized we were a tough task solskjaer said that this that we were the best team they played apart from psg and that and so he knew it was going to be a tough task and and so yeah i i, I just 
worry about the away form. I just can't explain it. You know, I just can't explain the 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 way we walk into these stadiums. We need to walk in there remembering that we're Arsenal Football Club and you've got a problem today. It says you know, it on really the shirt, could, so you'd like to yeah, believe we could, you know. You know, it's, it's, it's an intangible, I know you love those, Elliot, but it's really important. <laughs> I don't have a walk, problem with that. Uh, you walk into these grounds and you just establish yourself. And it was quite interesting. We did that in home games. We did that with hard work, intensity and drive and getting behind people and making them stressed. Why can't we do that on, on the away games? Or... If we need to have a counter-attack strategy, then settle on that. Do something that says we, we know what we're doing in the away games and we're all together. And I think I think Paul touched on it earlier on, but I really feel that there comes a point in the season when you get over a hump and you're on the downslide of the season and eight games is a small enough chunk when all bets are off. All previous psycho- psychological moments go away and everyone knows that these eight games are cup finals. And I think we can almost have a reset and really focus on that. And I think I'm, I'm hoping I, I'm with Paul there. I think we're going to crack that waveform strategy and basically push on. So I'm hopeful, but I'm not doing a lapse of honor just yet, mate. I, I am. I already did them all. Uh, Paul, I want to give you the final word on whether you think we're we're in the box seat, driver's seat, driving seat, however you say it for top four. I the amount of chaos going on outside my door right now makes the Arsenal penalty area look like the calmest place in the world. But uh, <laughs> let's try to wrap this up. So, what do you think, top four? What's your expectation at this point? Uh, I think it's very fifty-fifty. I think our running is the. On paper, we should do it. I think we have turned a corner in terms of just simplifying the formula uh, psychologically going forward. I think, as Clive said, with eight games to go, we know the problem. I don't think it's that big an issue that five of those games are away games because once you define the problem, you know what you're trying to solve. So I think we'll lock into what we're going to do there. Um, The worrying things are the things beyond our control. Uh, United were for me, scary good in this game in the sense that they were better than I wanted them to be and and was convincing myself they were before this. They may not have a, a star roster at, at every position, but they're just, this is a very strong squad. And then the other scary thing is Chelsea, who I keep thinking they're dead and buried. Every time I look down, they're, they're like, they're still right there. They got a game in hand. Um, they shouldn't even be in it at this stage based on how I feel some of their game, their results in games, you know, they drew again at the weekend. Like it turns out right. the points are worth more than your feelings about their play. Yeah. Well, it, my memory as to their results. I, I totally like, agree with you. Aren't they dead by now? It's but funny when I saw the points they had, I didn't realize they had a game in hand. Cause I just assumed they'd fallen out of it. <laughs> yeah. I keep expecting them to be like off the pace and they're right there. So the, those two clubs have me worried just cause the clubs they are and the way they're they're hanging around. So I I think Spurs will go down, go out of the top four, which would be delicious. Um, and it's all about our mentality and our focus. Uh, but I think we can do it. And I think I think I'd put us on the favorable side of fifty fifty. It, it's weird. It, it would be a hell of an achievement if we do it, and yet somehow if we don't. It will feel disappointing yeah. having gotten ourselves into this position with really winnable games left in the Premier League. So we'll leave it there. We have a live YouTube video show coming up on Wednesday, a Ren uh, live halftime show, a post-match podcast in the spotlight on Patreon, which we'd be delighted if you signed up for. Um, I am going to end this because, again, I mean, there are toddlers 
everywhere outside my office door. I, I don't even know where they all came from. It's like somewhere there's a herd of toddlers missing and they're in my house. So uh, uh, Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Paul's on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Thanks, Pause. Mm-hmm. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about Scott. Do it. It's not even his fault he's not here. He'll be here on the next one. Write it about him anyway. Uh, we will have lots of great content for you this week. But most importantly, let's also stay alive in the Europa League. That would be fun. I think this win springboards us to that one. Get through and on to the next round of the Europa League. So we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Ren nil. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.